You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode 51 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts, and this is the show for December 2017. Well, it's a solo show to round out the year, um, just little old me talking to you. Uh, as I record this show, it's December the 22nd, so, it, you know, it's the height of the silly season. It's not an easy time to get a panel or an interview together. So I figured I'd make use of that fact to round out a little mini-series we've sort of been doing on and off together on the three sides of the so-called exposure triangle. Um, and also, this is, uh, I don't have a particularly large amount of content for this uh, for this solo show. It's, it's actually quite a simple topic. Um, and so, you know, I'll explain it and we'll have some fun, I hope. But it probably won't be quite as long as the other two shows in this mini-series. And um, unfortunately, that works out quite well because due to, I'm assuming, the winter weather, I'm a little bit under the weather health-wise. Um, nothing... Nothing dramatic, or just, you know, a bit of a sore throat, a bit of a headache, all, you know, all bunged up, you know, your typical winter blues. So I think my voice will hold out for a short show, but I'm not entirely sure I have the energy for a long show anyway, so it's probably better off that we're going to do a little show. So let's get stuck in. Okay, so the two legs of the exposure triangle we've already covered are exposure first, which is how long do we allow light to pass through the lens and be focused onto the light-sensitive medium at the focal plane. So whether that light-sensitive medium is a piece of film, or whether that light-sensitive medium is a modern uh, digital sensor, makes no odds. The point is the exposure time is how long we allow the light to pass, to fall onto that light-sensitive material. Uh, Long exposures obviously means more light. So longer times more light, so the, the image is more exposed, and less is less. Straightforward enough. Then the second control we learned about is aperture, which is the size of the hole through which the light passes as it is being allowed to come through the lens and be focused onto the focal plane. And so you control that by changing the size of the the physical hole or aperture, hence aperture. Bigger hole, more light. Smaller hole, less light. So what's the third leg? Well, the third leg is wrongly, let's be blunt about this, it is wrongly, on just about every camera I've come across in recent years, and in just about every photo app I've ever used, and in just about every exifier I've ever seen, it is wrongly called ISO. It is actually film speed. So the actual third setting is film speed, and even when you're not using film, it's still film speed. Um, But the formal standard for measuring film speed is defined by the International Standards Organization, or the International Organization for Standardization, uh, to be more technically correct. It's one of those acronyms where the acronym is out of order with the name so that it's not correct in any language. It's like UTC, is Universal Coordinated Time, or Tombe Universelle Coordinate. But basically, the French know the English get to have the acronym in the order that's correct in their language. Well, ISO is the same sort of thing. So in English, it would be IOS, uh, and in French, I guess it would be Organisation Internationale de Standardisation, so it would be OSI. And so we've settled on calling it ISO because that way no one gets to win. You know, the ultimate compromise. Anyway, that's, that's oh, it's, never mind. Don't even go there. Um, so the International Organization for Standardization has defined 
the mathematical mechanism for measuring and giving a a value to sort of you know calculating the film speed for a given photographic medium or sensor and they have defined that standard in one of their numbered standards specifically ISO 58000 or sorry 5800 5800 or really really specifically ISO 5800:2001 but somehow while no other ISO standards gets to be truncated like that, photographers have decided that they are the only thing in, in the entire planet standardised by the International Organisation for Standardisation, and they've just abbreviated it to ISO, um, which is insane because, you know, the quality is ISO 9000. Like, there are so, so, so many ISO standards to, to just arrogantly say, oh, yeah, we'll just take ISO as meaning ISO 5800. Okay, fair enough. But anyway, that's not here nor there. I don't get to change camera manufacturers. I don't get to change years and years and years of photographers' common parlance. So I will grudgingly refer to film speed as ISO for the remainder of this podcast. So with that little um, rant out of the way, I'll climb down from my soapbox um, and say, okay, so what is it? Well, the third leg is how sensitive to light the thing at the focal plane that this light is being cast onto actually is. So if something is not very sensitive, we say that it has a low ISO or it is a slow medium. So a slow film or a slow ISO, you might also say in modern parlance, or you set your camera to a slow setting. So it's film speed, hence we would refer to it as slow. Uh, And then obviously on the other side, something which is very sensitive to light is considered, is called fast. So you might have a fast film, which might be, you know, in the olden days, ISO 1600 was considered fast. Digital cameras have completely changed the ball on these things, but we'll get there later. Um, So the reason we talk about slow and fast when it comes to ISOs is because we're actually talking about film speed, and hence slow-fast makes some amount of sense. And it is a measure of how much effect light has on the film. So if a film is not very light-sensitive, you need to hit it with a lot of light to actually get the image recorded. If a film or a sensor is very sensitive, then a small amount of light will make a really big signal, and it will be easily recorded. So that, that is what it is. Now, you may notice an obvious difference between ISO and the other two legs of the exposure triangle. Those other two legs, it's very easy to envisage how you manipulate them. How do you manipulate the length of time the light hits the the film plane? Well, you just manipulate how long the shutter is open. How do you manipulate uh, the the size of the hole? Well, in the olden days, you had physical stops you would place in the lens, and nowadays we have these movable blades inside our lenses which make the hole bigger or smaller. Easy to see how that's changeable. So you turn a dial and it changes the setting in the camera. Hey, presto. How do you change the sensitivity of a piece of film to light? Well, the answer is you don't. Because the sensitivity of a piece of film is determined by its chemistry. Plain and simple. Whatever chemicals are on that film determine how sensitive it is to light. You don't get to change it. So in the film days, you did have a little bit of control over ISO. So as you were setting up to shoot, you would make a decision. What film will I load into the camera in order for this to do this work? But once you'd loaded that roll of film, that was your ISO until that until you unloaded that roll of film, either because you wound it back into itself, remembered how far you'd gone, swapped it for another roll of film, wound it forward the right amount. I mean, you could do all sorts of horrible hacks. But basically, you chose your ISO 
as sort of an initial setting and then that ISO was with you for the day and then the next day maybe you're going to do something completely different so you'd use a completely different ISO but the ISO is a property of the film and so it really wasn't anywhere near as variable as either the exposure or the aperture so a lot of people who would have learned to shoot on film don't consider there to be an exposure triangle they consider there to be an exposure seesaw whereas you raise one you lower the other to keep things in balance right so it's you know you have just these two variables which exactly counteract each other but in the digital age we're now used to the concept of the triangle because we on our cameras do get to adjust all three sides easily whereas Film photographers had a little bit of control because they chose what film to use in what situation. But once they'd made that choice, the, the ISO was locked in, which is very a very different way of thinking in the modern world. But actually, when you come to think about it, the physics of your sensor determines how sensitive it is to light. So that actually still doesn't explain how it is that we can adjust ISO on our cameras because we're not changing the physical makeup of the sensor. So what is actually going on? Well, that's... I think we should take a moment to explore that. Okay, so let's let's start by reminding ourselves how a modern digital sensor works. They're called charge-coupled devices, or CCDs. And the way you should think of them, which is a pretty accurate way of thinking of them, actually, is as a two-dimensional grid of squares. And each square is a pixel. And each of those squares contains some special semiconductor material which has a property, which is that every time a photon of light with sufficient energy wallops into it, it gets converted to an electron. And that electron... So the more light hits it, the more electrons build up. Therefore, the more of a negative charge builds up in that pixel. And when you end the exposure, you measure the amount of electric charge in every pixel, and that gives you the amount of light that hit every pixel, i.e. that gives you the digital image. So photons of light thwack into this semiconductor material, get converted to electrons, the digital sensor measures the charge of each pixel at the end of the exposure, and that's your image. So again, there doesn't seem to be a way to vary the sensitivity, right? The sensor will respond to a photon the way it responds to a photon. It is an intrinsic property of the sensor. It is not under your control. And yet, I have a dial on my camera that clearly tells me I can change the ISO. What's going on? Well, the answer is that raw information is is the raw information, but that's not really what you get out in your image. What you get out is processed information. And therefore, simply what the camera does is it applies a multiplier to the raw information to get you the final information. In other words, it, it applies a gain, which is simply a multiplication by a fixed number to every pixel. So again, is applied to the raw data to give you the final data. So the sensor has a what we call a native sensitivity. And that is, if you did not apply again, how sensitive to light would this sensor be? And that is its native ISO. And you will find that deep down somewhere in the manual of your camera. It's native ISO. And it's actually a really good thing to know as we learn about in a moment. Um, so it's, I actually like to know what the native ISO of my cameras is, so that, well, it's, as I'll explain in a moment. So you have this native sensitivity, and then you apply this multiplier to get the final output. So that gain can be positive or negative. So let's imagine a hypothetical camera with a native ISO of 400. If you shoot it at ISO 50, it's actually applying a, a gain that is less than 1. 
So it's not negative. That's the wrong word to use. It's a fractional gain. And if you have, so your native ISO is 400 and you're setting your camera to 1600, then it's multiplying by four. So it's a greater than one gain. So it's a whole number gain. Um, and literally, it's just a simple mu- multiplication. That That's what's going on. So you just, you take the native ISO, multiply it by the gain, and that gives you the output ISO. So what you're actually controlling with that dial on your camera is by how much should I multiply the actual information coming off the sensor? What gain should be used. That's what you're actually in control of. Now, in the days of film, you run into a problem with sensitivity in the sense that in order to make each grain in the image more light-sensitive, you had to make each grain bigger. So what you tended to end up with was that a film that was very light-sensitive would have very large grains, and so you would get grainy photographs. And in the digital world, when you... Basically... The more dramatic the the multiplier you use in the gain, the more your signal-to-noise ratio degrades. And basically, the more the noise begins to overpower the signal. So if you have a sensor that's really, that's actually only sensitive at ISO 200, but you're trying to use it at ISO, as if it was ISO 1600, so you're multiplying everything by four, well then, all of your signal is going to be mushed down into the very, very, very low range of what the physical sensor can do. And all the noise is going to be in there too. So if the sensor has a range of 1 to 100, all of your light is going to be down to that bottom 25%. And so when you multiply that up, when you stretch that up to the full height by multiplying it by 4, you've also multiplied all the noise by 4. And so you end up with a noisy image, which actually in some ways looks a bit like grain. So there's kind of an irony to that. Uh, but of course, it also works the other way. If you have way too much light and you're actually applying a fractional gain, then that also becomes really noisy. So if the gain is a long way from one in either direction, so if you if you have a small fractional gain or a large, you know, greater than one gain, you get more noise. And so your camera will have a sweet spot. And that sweet spot will be the native ISO. So the closer you can get to the native ISO, the closer you can work to the native ISO, the less noise you have, because the gain being being applied is ideally zero, or if not zero, close to zero. And that will work great. Um, in reality, you just need to get to know your own camera. And so what you'll discover is, you'll discover that your camera has a sweet spot, and you'll discover that your camera has a range of what you personally consider to be acceptable noise levels. And that is a personal decision. Uh, and then you'll just know to work within it, and then you'll know that only when circumstances absolutely force your hand will you drive the ISO above or below a certain amount. Will you go out of what you know your camera's comfort zone is? Uh, so basically, there is no substitute for getting to know your camera. And so just always remember that when you're cranking up the ISO, you're cranking up the gain, which means that your signal-to-noise ratio is getting worse and worse and worse. And So the more you crank it up, the more noise you are inevitably going to get because that's how gain works. Now, at this stage, that's kind of all there is to say about ISO, or film speed, to give it its proper name. Um, It's not actually a particularly complex concept. Really, it's just, oh, okay, so it's how sensitive it is to light, and on a digital camera, we're controlling it by using the gain knob, effectively. And that's kind of all there is to it. But I will just say one last thing, just to, if you'll excuse the phrase, round out the triangle. Anyway. Uh, So, we learned when we were looking at both exposure and aperture that... On your camera, when you click, when you click, 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 when you click a setting, what you're actually moving 
all of the settings, whether it be an ISO setting, sorry, whether it be an aperture setting or an exposure setting, each click is equivalent to one-third of a stop, one-third of an EV, as we talked about in the, ex- the exposure um, episode. And the same is true of ISO. So when you're adjusting the ISO on a modern digital camera, every click of that dial is one-third of an EV, one-third of a stop. So if you have the correct exposure, but it's too noisy, then you can drop the ISO by three clicks, raise the exposure by one, and raise the aperture by two, and that will be entirely equivalent. The amount of light getting in, will, the amount of light being recorded will remain the same. So the image will remain as bright. Now you're going to have side effects from the longer exposure. Maybe you'll have a bit of motion blur. You might have side effects from the bigger aperture because you might have a bit less depth of field. But again, it's always a trade-off in the exposure triangle. Um, and everything on the exposure triangle has side effects, right? So adjusting the exposure time affects how much light gets in, so therefore how bright your image is, and also how much blur you have. Short exposure times freeze motion, long exposure times blur motion. Aperture, again, affects how much light gets in, so how bright your image is, but it has side effects because it affects your depth of field due to Fresnel, um, or was it Fraunhofer? Anyway, due to whatever type of um, optical effect I talked about in detail last time. Um, And so wide apertures have shallow depths of field, and very, very small apertures towards pinholes have very, very deep depths of field. So you have a side effect there. And again, ISO is no different, or film speed. Um, high f- so f- going far off your gain increases your noise. Whether you go off your gain, regardless of what direction you go off your native ISO, you start to have more noise. So the zero of noise is not at the lowest ISO. That's actually a really common mistake. People assume that because my camera might go down to an ISO of 50, that must be the least noisy image, because I know if I go to a high ISO, it's really noisy. So a low ISO must be the best. No, the best is at your camera's native ISO, whatever that is, and it will be in the manual somewhere. So don't be tempted to go down as low as possible. Know what is native, and don't go below native unless you have to, because there's just too much light for some reason. Maybe you really, really want a blur motion. Whatever it is, there may be a reason that you need to use a lower ISO, but you should avoid going too far away from the native. That's what you're trying to do. Anyway, so the side effect of messing or adjusting, messing is the wrong word, the side effect of adjusting the ISO dial, is noise level. So you adjust the exposure, you have as a side effect motion blur. You adjust the aperture, you have as a side effect depth of field, and you adjust the ISO, you have as a side effect noise levels. And that's just the way it is. And you as a photographer have three variables which are all connected, and there's an infinity for any given amount of light, there's an infinity of combinations of those three settings which will give you a correctly exposed image. And the art of photography, the craft of photography, is in figuring out which of those effect... Well, okay, they're not technically infinite because our cameras go in thirds of a stop instead of in infinitesimally small clicks. But anyway, bear with me. Which of these massive amount of possible correct settings do I want? Which is artistically going to work for me? And so on the one hand, the exposure triangle, the triangle is trivially simple. On the other hand, it's deviously complex because it's an art and there's only one way to learn an art and that's to bloody well do it. So there is no shortcut. It's hours upon hours upon hours of experience, of experimenting, of you know, getting it wrong, getting it very wrong and then learning why it was wrong and then changing your behavior and trying something else and trying something different until you end up with images that you're happy with. And there just is no shortcut. So yes, it's very easy to mathematically, scientifically, logically, sensibly, physically 
understand the three legs of the exposure triangle are actually very simplistic. Learning to use them to create art, eh, it takes effort, that takes time. So the art of arting, as uh, the guys over on the um, shorter time would say, is hard. And that that is why photography is an art. Anyway, I think I've uh, prattled on for long enough. I've... Uh, I have finished all of my notes, so I've said everything I thought it was important to say. Um, speaking of said notes, you will find them over at lets-talk.ie. They're basically bullet point notes for these kind of episodes. And while you're there, you'll see a large banner in the sidebar next to the show notes, which has a heading, Support the Show. Firstly, I want to take this moment at the end of the year to give an extra special thank you to everyone who does support the show. And there are an awful, awful lot of you who do in many different ways. So to any of you who have told your friends about the show, who have tweeted about the show, who have reviewed the show on iTunes or any other podcatcher, genuinely, thank you. You have helped this show to continue to exist, and I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. To those of you who have bought stuff in the Zazzle store, there are extremely few of you, Mostly me. Um, But anyway, you exist. Uh, Thank you. You get to walk around as a walking advertisement for the show, and I get a commission from that, so that is great. Um, To those of you who have donated via PayPal, thank you very much. It is really appreciated. Those PayPal donations this year, so in 2017, those PayPal donations have allowed me to do some software updates, which have made it easier for me to record the show. And they've also helped me with some hardware, actually. Um, So I now have a boom to hold up my mic, for example. I have a nice new shock mount. Uh, This isn't the difference between the show coming out or not, but it is the difference between my life being easier or less easy. And, uh, you know, I appreciate having my life be easier. I appreciate, you know, the mic boom is is something really, really simple, but really, really pleases me greatly. Um, And I was able to buy that because of the money coming in from donations. So thank you very much. There are also a number of listeners who have donated in kind, as in, I have said on the show, oh, I'm saving up for a new microphone, and then a listener has bought me a microphone. Or I have mentioned a particular piece of software I wanted to buy, and I got an email saying, here you go, here's a license code I just bought for you. Um, So, you know, listeners have literally answered my prayers. I've said, oh, I'd really like X to work on this podcast and bada bing bada boom, X appears. You guys know who you are and I thank you very much. Um, and then there is, in one regard, well look, to be honest, the single most effective way of supporting this show is Patreon. And that's a little bit troubling to me at the moment because this month the people at Patreon did a Herculean attempt at committing suicide, at destroying the service. Now, at the last minute, they saw sense and they backed off. So they actually didn't change all the rules. They actually didn't um, ruin it for everyone. But they came so close to ruining it for everyone that I got really deeply uncomfortable because the simple fact is the practicalities of running this show would be immensely more difficult without Patreon. So the way Patreon works is that you sign up to become a patron of the show, or in specific, you become a patron of me, and every time I publish a podcast, you pledge a certain amount against that. And the idea is it's for small dollar amounts. 
So you can pledge a dollar every time I put out a show. I will put out exactly two shows a month, one Apple, one photography. So, you know, if you want to give me $2 a month, pledge a dollar and it'll become two. If you want to give me $5 a month, pledge two fifty per episode. But, you know, that's the idea. It's small dollar donations. That's what Patreon is supposed to be good at. And Patreon basically this initially were, had said, well, within days of rolling out a new system where instead of me paying fees on the aggregate total, so basically you guys all pledge small dollar amounts that all pools together into a big pool, and then I pay one fee to Patreon on that pool, and that fee allows Patreon to continue to exist as a company, as a website, as a as a going concern. And it also covers PayPal fees. Uh, but it's a single transaction. So all of your little donations get pooled together, I pay one fee, which is not very big, to Patreon, and one fee, which is not very big, to PayPal, and then the vast majority of the money pledged comes to me. And it works extremely well because of this aggregation principle. And that's exactly the thing Patreon tried to blow up. Um, now, they they heard very strongly from podcasters, very vocally from podcasters. I was among them, but I was by no means the most vocal, nor the most influential, by a long stretch. But they listened. And they backed out, and they went, oh, sugar, you're yes, this will completely ruin small donations, because what they were going to do was push the fees onto you. So every time I put out a show, you'd get slapped with a, with a fee of like something like 40 cent or something. So that suddenly becomes a big ask. Instead of me saying, please give me a dollar, it's, well, if you want to give me a dollar, you're going to have to give me a dollar fifty. What? That's ridiculous. You know, charge me the fees and the pool at the end. Don't charge the, the, the patrons a fee. Let the patrons contribute to the small dollar amounts. Anyway, they saw sense. It's all good. But it has left me feeling a little bit uncomfortable because the reality is I completely rely on the Patreon income because it's very... It's not exactly fixed, but it's stable. It's steady. It's steady enough that I can gauge the amount of RAM I can put into my server and stuff based on the amount of money coming in via Patreon so that I can make the show and its website, and its various bits and pieces, so I can make it be self-sufficient. I'm not trying to make a profit out of podcasting, I do this for fun. But I also am in a position where I can put my own money into it. It has to be something where I, I dedicate, I gladly give my time. I gladly give my effort. But I can't give my money. It's just not possible at the moment. That's just the way life is right now. And that's why the, the Patreon is so important, because it's a regular income, I can create bills, I can enter into contracts and stuff, knowing that there's this Patreon money coming, and this month, for a week, it looked like that was going to evaporate, and that actually was an existential crisis for these shows. Thankfully, the crisis has passed, but it still left me very uncomfortable, and so one of the things, I think, is if anyone knows of any other services out there that maybe provide a good model for small dollar contributions, maybe let me know, because maybe it's time that I spread myself out a bit, that I didn't Attached, it didn't hitch so much of my wagon to this one corporation who proven themselves to be completely out of touch with my needs. Anyway, I didn't. I only wanted to talk shortly about that, but uh, that is what happened. So those of you who stuck with me through all this, who are still my patrons on Patreon, thank you ever so much. You guys really are the heart and soul of this show, and um, you know, it, it's yeah, it's really appreciated. And also, I do just want to say, I want to give an extra special shout out to a number of listeners who know you who you are. It's December. It's Christmas time. I received some extremely generous donations this month. Uh, Those of you who made them also accompany them with very kind emails um, explaining 
what you know where this rather substantial donation came from and giving your reasons and i am deeply touched and i thank you very very much it's supremely helpful at this expensive time of year to have some completely unexpected left of field income it's it just it, it, it's wonderful thank you is really all I have to say. So I've definitely prattled on long enough um, about how you can support the show and how much I appreciate all of those of you who do. So I'll just end by reminding you, show notes will be at letstashtalk.ie. I want to wish you all the very best for this holiday season and whatever it is you celebrate, or even if you celebrate nothing, you know, this is a time when most of the world sort of ratchets down a bit. Um, so make the most of it. Chill out, chillax, eat some nice food, Drink some nice drinks, enjoy yourselves, spend some quality time with family, um, and the absolute very best wishes for 2018. Hopefully there's lots of great lens fodder that makes its way in front of your camera, and you manage to capture it in all the ways you want, and you produce art that you are proud of and happy with. And with all that said, I'll say until next time, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Amazon, Google, Apple, Android, iOS, Alexa, Siri, technology, sci-fi, video games, tablets, computers, flash drives, toys, weather, and general silliness. Geekiest show ever, every week on the MyMac Podcasting Network. 